Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. I'm going to ask for a little bit more volume in the house so that I don't have to force my voice so much this morning. Uh, I am blessed. Are you blessed? Yeah, and you know something? God is good, and he's good to us all the time. And the thing that we need to remember more than anything else this morning, as we celebrate this season, as we remember that Jesus Christ came for us, that he not only came to this earth as a man, but he came to die as a man in our place for each and every one of us. Amen? Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We are grateful for all that you do all that you've done, all that you are doing in and through our lives, Lord. We thank you for our church fellowship, and we pray right now that there wouldn't be any distractions or anything that would prevent us from receiving from your word. Help our minds to be focused, mine as well, completely and totally on you. Lord, we thank you for all your many blessings, especially upon the Hollowell family and all that you've done in and through their lives and the praise reports that we have and the celebration today of little Joshua. Lord, we're grateful for them and for their family to be with us today. And we're grateful for your many blessings and your healing power. We continue to pray for it in each of our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning you can turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. It was two weeks ago. We had our Christmas service last week. Wonderful time. But this morning we pick up where we left off two weeks ago in Acts chapter 18, in verse 18. And we're going to see that Paul is not the only person that God uses in the early church. Why is that important? I think it's especially true that pastors and ministry leaders start to believe in their hearts that if they don't do the work, no one will. One of the things that I know is a great temptation, a great temptation for pastors is to think that if they don't show up, the work of God won't happen. I want to remind you what happened when Elijah was thinking that way. In 1 Kings, he came to the conclusion that there was no one left. There was only him. He was the only one that was serving God in Israel. And of course, it wasn't true. And God corrected him and made it clear that he had 7,000 other choices. I think the Lord has more than 7,000 other choices than you and than me, than us. Why is that important? Because once you recognize that God can do his work through anyone, it just relieves the pressure. Can I hear an amen? amen? When you realize that if you're working in the nursery in this particular week, you can't be there. God will raise someone else up to work. It's his work. If you get a little scratchy throat and you have to call Pastor Russ and say, Pastor Russ, I'm I'm not going to be able to make it to serve and worship. You know what the truth is? God will raise up someone else to sing. It doesn't matter who you are. We need God. God doesn't need us. And once we understand that God can work mightily through any person that makes themselves available to him, then suddenly it takes the pressure off and we find ourselves just praising God for his work and the work that he does through us. Paul was a mighty force in the early church. He was a man that did great things because God worked greatly through him. However, Paul was not the only game in town. Here's what's about to happen. Paul is been, has been on the mission field for some time. And we read in chapter 18, verses 18 through verse 22... 
Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Chentria because of a vow he had taken. And they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, and he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus, and when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, that is the church in Jerusalem, and then went down to Antioch. So this is the tail end, the closing of Paul's second missionary journey. Very different in many ways in his first missionary journey. His first missionary journey was Paul and Barnabas. The second one started out Paul and Silas, but it didn't end that way. What started to happen in the early church and in Paul's ministry is he recognized that he could delegate and pass on the ministry to others. He could leave one of his co-workers, one of his co-laborers, one of his ministry partners in a city and they could continue the work. It wasn't all about him. Can I hear an amen? It's not about you. Oh, I know we live in the country that basically is preaching this message to everyone. It's about you. Everything's about you. I mean, we have all these mirrors in our houses. So when we look in the mirror, we say, oh yeah, that's right. It is all about me. I love the example that if we were to take a picture of the congregation today and your eyes were closed, it would be a bad picture. Everyone else could look wonderful, but your eyes were closed, so therefore it's a bad picture. And you're always the first person you look for when you look at a group photo. I think we need to get into a place where we stop thinking this way. If we stop thinking that it's all about us, certain things are going to happen. You might go on that missions trip. You might get involved in some ministry to feed those who are needy, like a team did this weekend, yesterday. You might join the Sunday school. You might get involved in presenting a wonderful Christmas play, like we saw last Sunday. The volunteers that got involved in that, and again, I just want to thank Sharon and her team. There were so many people who who were a part of that that really blessed us. But you know, at no point when those individuals who were sharing and supporting the children, at no point while they were doing it, I'm sure, did any one of them say, oh, I'm so glad this is all about me. You see, when we free ourselves from this selfish way of thinking that we are all guilty of, God begins to work mightily in and through our hearts and our lives, and it doesn't become about you, your comfort, or your convenience, or mine for that matter. So here's what happens. That's the mindset that I think begins to happen in in Paul's heart. It's already happened, but now he's in a place where there are enough other workers, there's enough individuals, there, there are enough other people who are skilled, capable, and mature enough that Paul can walk away from a city, leave a worker in that city, and know that the work of God will continue without him. So Paul sailed from Corinth to Ephesus, cities we're familiar with because there are letters written by Paul to these cities in our Bibles. Now remember that Paul was called by the Holy Spirit to leave Achaia, southern Greece, to return to Antioch, his home church, in Syria. If you're familiar with the geography of that area of the world, you know that Greece is across the Aegean Sea, and then you make your way to Asia Minor, which we call Turkey today, and then to Syria, which is north of Israel today, and still is. 
Okay, so that's a long distance. But he needs to make his way back as the Lord is leading him. Now, Corinth was a famous city in Greece. We talked about Corinth two weeks ago. It was under Roman rule, and Achaia was the southern portion of Greece. It was a province. Uh, And then we had these individuals that Paul has been leaving behind. I want to remind you, Silas and Timothy had been traveling with Paul throughout his second missionary journey. And as he's traveling with them, something pretty awesome happens. He realizes these guys need to stay behind and the work needs to continue without me. Silas and Timothy probably stayed in Corinth to minister to the brothers in the fellowship after Paul left. But Paul had had, had been in Corinth for some time. In fact, Luke, remember Luke? He's the author of the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. He had been left in Philippi even earlier. And he actually rejoined Paul seven or eight years later. He spent seven or eight years in the city of Philippi, which more than likely was his home. And he was there, and he didn't join Paul until his third missionary journey, actually his third trip there. So what you see is a man leaving strategically, leaving people in places where they can be used by God. By the way, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. That is my heart. Always has been, always will be. To raise up leaders and have them in the place where they can be strategically used by God. For one thing, as young as I look, I'm not getting any younger. I looked at a picture of myself the other day. I said, man, I'm getting older. I didn't say old. I said older. And even though my Nana lived to be 107, I don't suspect I'll be up here teaching at 107, even if I live that long, or the Lord should tarry. So I'm keenly aware of the fact that the word of God must continue without me, because again, it's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's about him. Can I hear an amen? And there are many wonderful people in this church and in other churches who've been anointed with gifts that are as wonderful as any gift we may have. And in some ways, different, in some ways, uh, very interesting gifts. And, And they need to be encouraged to use those gifts. Because the kingdom of God is bigger than any one person or one single group of people. So we have Luke. We have Silas and Timothy. They're hanging out in Corinth now. Luke is in Philippi. And so Paul sails for Antioch in Syria, but he he takes two individuals with him, Priscilla and Aquila. They were natives of Pontus, which was a province in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. We talked about them two weeks ago. They may have been among the early Christians on the day of Pentecost because there were Jews from Pontus there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They may have been. They had been banished from Rome by Claudius Caesar. We talked about this. They were living in Corinth. That's when Paul met them. And Paul went to see them, not because they were Christians, but because they were tent makers, leather workers. And and that was what Paul did as his profession. And so God brought them into his life. And here he is ministering in Corinth for 18 months, for a year and a half with them and Silas and Timothy and others. And there's really no reason for Paul to stay any longer And so he decides to leave. The Lord leads him to leave. So what did Paul do? He took these individuals with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Because he he didn't want to be alone. No, because he had a plan as well to take these leaders, a man and a woman, a, a couple, and place them in another city where they could minister while Paul was heading back home. He had been on the mission field for some time, a couple of years. Now, these individuals, Priscilla and Aquila, would later minister in Corinth, Rome, and Ephesus, 
So what would the world be like if we didn't encourage others to serve him, what, to serve the Lord? What would the world be like? Well, it would be very difficult to minister the gospel if it was all on your back, wouldn't it? Well, Paul shaved his head at Chenchuria because he had taken the vow of a Nazarite. If you want to learn more about this vow, it was a Jewish vow of consecration. It's talked about in Numbers chapter 6. They would shave their head and they would not eat certain things, not drink wine, not eat raisins. They would eat, live in a certain way of consecration for a period of time, usually about 30 days. And it was a vow. And you would say, well, I'm going to take this vow. And as I take this vow, I'm, I'm going to do something. And when that is accomplished, then I won't have to live according to these restrictions anymore. Kind of like what some Christians might do around Lent. And this vow of the Nazarite required that he shave his head first. So he does that. And then we're just being told, well, what's Paul up to? Paul's heading to Jerusalem. And he wants to basically reestablish himself at home and with the church in Jerusalem because he has been away for so long. And that was how the Lord led him. Now, Chantria was a harbor just about nine miles east of Corinth. So he just goes to the closest harbor. He gets on a, on a ship. As I said, he administered in the Gentile church in Corinth for a year and a half, 18 months. During that time, he had not been to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and he was probably trying to return to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three annual feasts that were celebrated by the Jews in Jerusalem. He still personally practiced the Jewish services, the Jewish rituals. He did. He, he didn't just dismiss those things from his life because he'd, be, he'd become a Christian. The ceremonial law was important to him, but not necessary for salvation. It was more of a tradition, but it was how he was raised. To him, this was serving God. This was worshiping God. So he did. Personally practiced them. And the ceremonial law wasn't a burden for Paul. It wasn't a burden at all. It was a joy. There are many things we do that can be described as religious. Like coming to church, receiving communion, being baptized. There may be other things that we do that may seem religious to some people. If you do it as a form of godliness, then it is religious. It's, it's, it's not really as important. But if you do those things like coming to church, worshiping God, ministering in the power of the Spirit, if you do that as a joy, then it is not a burden. If there's something you're doing in ministry today, and I specifically speak to our leaders, that is a burden that you, that you don't look forward to, please stop doing it. Everything we do for Christ should be a joy. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. Listen, <clears throat> if you're bummed out, if you're burned out, if serving the Lord isn't extreme joy, if you don't look forward to being here on a Sunday when you're scheduled in nursery, then let our nursery leader know you shouldn't be doing it anymore. Everyone who serves here serves because they want to. There is no pressure put on anyone to serve in any ministry. I love being here. Can I hear an amen? Do we love being in the house of the Lord? I, I want to be here. I don't got to. I get to. Paul would do things that seemed to be religious, but they were not religious exercises. They were acts of worship and devotion. So he did. Now, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila arrived in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus in what we call Proconsular Asia. The province of Proconsular Asia was the western region of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. 
Paul had not ministered that much in that area because he had bypassed proconsular Asia as the Spirit led him into Macedonia or northern Greece. Now, Asia included the region of Phrygia, the cities of Laodicea, Heropolis, uh, Colossae, cities we're familiar with. It also included the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Thardis, and Sardis, and Philadelphia. Those cities were the seven churches of Revelation. So, give you a little geography lesson. This is the area of the world that they stop in as Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem. Now, Ephesus is a city. In Greek, the word means desirable. Desirable. And indeed, it was a desirable place to be. It was a maritime city of Asia Minor. It was the capital of proconsular Asia. It was situated on the Icarian Sea between Smyrna and Miletus, a well-traveled area. It had been colonized principally from Athens, where Paul had been recently, though many Jews lived there. And in the time of the Romans, it bore the title of the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. It was a place much like the city of New York, to us. But it was distinguished for the temple and chief shrine of Artemis, known by the Romans as Diana. You remember when he was in Corinth, it was the temple of Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of love and lust. But now we have this temple, the chief shrine of Artemis or Diana. Do you know that this was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? It was. It was a a grand feat of architecture. When it had been built, it was 425 feet long, contained 125 columns, and it was built of the purest marble. As I think about that, as I imagine that, that's an impressive sight. In fact, it took 220 years to build this temple. But as is the case with all the things that man creates, it didn't last that long. Paul never saw that version of that temple for it burned down in 356 BC. Oh, they rebuilt it, and it certainly wasn't the wonder that it had been, but it was rebuilt, and the Greeks paid to rebuild it. Now, Artemis was represented by a multi-breasted black image, and that signified that this god... Artemis was the goddess of fertility, prosperity. And what's interesting is the temple was built on the site where the image allegedly fell from heaven. Some believe a meteorite came down and they found it, uh, the rock, and they looked at it and they saw in this an image of Artemis. And so they set this rock up in the temple. That may or may not be true, but that was the legend. And so this temple was built around this image that they believe or perhaps possibly did fall from heaven. So that's the kind of city that Paul finds himself in and where the Jews were living, who were living there. Another interesting thing that existed in this city was the open sky theater. I want you to think about a stadium. And you might be thinking or imagining something rather small. But they had an open sky theater. It was the largest in the world at that time. It seated 50,000 people. That's larger than most arenas. That, I remember the old giant stadium, they used to say could fit like 73,000 or 85,000 or something like that, depending on how they were configuring the seating and whether it was a concert or a football game. I don't know how much the current stadium fits. I don't follow the NFL anymore. They lost me. That's saying something. 
But we don't have time for that Bible study. So here's what I do know. I do know that this was a really large theater. So imagine that. Imagine something that large. Why am I describing the city for you? This was a significant city. And they wanted Paul to stay and he declined. And I think it's, it's, it's something to think. You make a vow to do something. You're being led of the Lord. And then you're tempted with a place where you could really get some ministry done. And you have to say no because God has other plans for you. And sometimes we have to say no. We really do. Sometimes we just have to decline an opportunity because God hasn't called us to minister in that capacity. If I responded to every single ministry opportunity I've ever been presented with in my life, I'd be dead a long time ago. Because God wants to use other people. Have you ever been on the volleyball court with a ball hog? You know, the thing about volleyball... Even two-man beach volleyball, you have to work together. You have to cover a zone. You, you can't be all over the field. I've been playing uh, volleyball with maybe about six or seven people on each side, and you got one person bumping into people, getting in people's way, trying to spike the ball, not setting, not bumping, not following the, 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 the strategy that you need to win a game, and it's a disaster. <laughs> Remind me not to pick you on my team. You just want to rotate them out, you know? But you know, we laugh. How many ministries look like that? One guy, one girl, one person running around, bumping into people, trying to spike the ball. Instead of setting it, bumping it, putting the ball where it needs to be to be strategic. It takes an incredible amount of discipline to take your ego, check it out, get it out of the area, And do the work of the Lord. The best ministers, men and women of the gospel, are the ones that know they're on a team. And to be a ball hog is to get in the way of the work of the Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen? All right. So here's what happens. Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in this city because he was planning to return to Antioch and Syria. See, he kind of knew that they were going to another city. He was going to need help and he couldn't stay. So he brings these two wonderful people and they really are gifted and equipped to minister the gospel, as we'll see. Now, Paul proclaimed the word of God. He did. He had a few days, you know, hey, listen, he's going to take advantage of the opportunity he does have. So he goes, as we read already, he goes to the synagogue. It says uh, there that... When they arrived at Ephesus in verse 19, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem and then went down to Antioch. So he has a few days, maybe, maybe just a short period of time. So what he does is he addresses the Jews in the synagogue. This was his practice. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ when he had the opportunity. He was waiting to set sail. But listen, the Pharisees, and Paul was a Pharisee at one point, they had established the synagogues. The synagogues were built and funded by this movement of the Pharisees. They were established throughout the world. Wherever you could have at least nine adult males, they were called a minion. And uh, you had that many people, you could have a synagogue. And of course, as a rabbi and as a former Pharisee, 
Paul had the authority to speak there. So he took advantage of the opportunity and he tried to persuade them, as he often did, from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Now, Paul was extremely well received by the Jews. That often happened day one, day two, week three. And usually what happened is the people would turn on them because he was so successful that his God working through him was so powerful in his life that people came to Christ and then a movement began and any Jew that rejected the gospel felt jealous and envious of Paul's quote-unquote success. Well, he wasn't there long enough for that to really happen, but he stayed there long enough to minister the gospel. Now, he was extremely well-received. But he declined. He needed to leave, so he declined. He had learned through experience. We see this in Paul's ministry over the years, the importance of using tact and diplomacy. I imagine that that was something that Paul had to grow into. It seems to me that early on, Paul got himself in trouble because he didn't have a filter. Would you agree? I mean, he's in Damascus, and they want to put him to death. Goes to Jerusalem, they want to put him to death. He goes into areas like Pisidian Antioch and other areas, and they want to put him to death in Lystra and Derby and other places and Iconium. And then he goes to Macedonia. They want to put him to death. Everywhere he goes, he seems to have death threats. He was faithful with the truth, but Paul, I believe, wasn't always using the kind of tact and diplomacy that would have made his ministry a little bit more effective. Now, I'm not criticizing Paul because God works through imperfect people. Amen. But what we see later in his life is a little bit more tact and diplomacy. We see his ability to relate and minister to people without causing a riot everywhere he goes. And I believe that he had learned that in Corinth. He seems to indicate that to us when he writes to the Corinthians. He was determined to know Christ and him crucified and nothing else. He made sure that he got out of the way so God could work. I would say nine times out of ten... We get in the way of what God is trying to do. No matter how gifted we are, no matter how cold we are. And as you mature in Christ, you'll learn, you know, if I get out of the way, God can work. And I think we start to see that in Paul's life in Corinth. Okay, well, back to Ephesus. He did promise to return there if it was the Lord's will for him to do so. He entrusted these Jews to his co-laborers, Priscilla and Aquila, and he did so without reservation. And he submitted himself and his ministry to the will of God. Did you see that? If it is God's will, get used to saying those words. If God wills, in Spanish, primero Dios. If it is God's will, we will do this thing. If it is God's will, James tells us to be this way. Don't say, oh, you know what? In three years, we're going to go here and then we're going to go there. We're going to go to this city. Just say, if the Lord wills it. You know, people have these strategies and these five-year plans. I used to have a 15-year plan. Then it was brought down to a 10-year plan. Then it was a five-year plan. Then it was a 12-month plan. You know what I have? No plan. I don't even know where I'm having lunch today. I've learned it's just better. You live at peace when you live in the present. Amen? This last year has been about me learning to live presently, to live in the present. As I live in the present, you know what I, I experience? What's going on around me. I actually begin to see things that are happening in real time 
as opposed to projecting out into the future as to what might happen, may not happen, where am I going to have lunch, where am I going to have dinner, where am I going to celebrate Christmas? Some of those things are still up in the air for me too. (laughs) Because this world is crazy. Someone gets the sniffles and we have a complete lockdown, hazmat suits. and You were around somebody that sneezed? You can't come to my house. I, I'm, I'm being facetious and a little comical, but it really isn't that far from the truth. So yeah, I don't even know where I'm going yet. But I have to live here and now. Because I don't know whether tomorrow will even happen for me. And what if all I did was think about the future and not live in the present? I would miss all the best moments. My wife and I, we, we were at a performance yesterday, one of the little ones we love. And as we're watching this, we're just kind of reminding each other, let's, let's live in this moment. Let's, let's just eat this up right now. Because they grow up and they're not little anymore. And you miss some of the best moments if you're too focused on what comes next. Just eat it up. Parents especially. My advice, enjoy every last moment. I, you, you know, you want them to stay really little for a long time. You know, you really do. They don't. A week goes by, they're bigger and taller, and they're saying things that they couldn't say before, and then they're off to college. Live in the moment. That's my, you know what? My encouragement to you this holiday season seems to be live in the present. Don't worry about the present. Live in the present. All right, well, Paul sailed from Ephesus, and he went to Caesarea, and then he visited Jerusalem before he returned to Antioch in Syria. I believe he went to Jerusalem to visit the church, to let him know what was happening. Now, Caesarea, where he landed, was about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That was the capital of the province of Judea, the seat of Roman governors and procurators. He went to major cities because that's where the ports were, but Caesarea may have also been the home of saints that had traveled there during the persecutions. So I believe Paul probably went there to visit the church in Caesarea as well. In fact, we know that Philip helped build up this church and ultimately lived there and had a house in the city. So he goes to Caesarea, visits with the brothers and the sisters. Then he goes to Jerusalem, visits with the brothers and the sisters. Now, what didn't happen in Jerusalem this time, or at least isn't recorded for us? No death threats this time. That, that's, that's conspicuous by its absence. Goes to Jerusalem, nobody tried to kill him, or at least we're not told they did. Later on, there are some issues, but at the moment, no. He just enjoyed the fellowship of his brothers and sisters. And then Paul traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch, where he stayed with the disciples for about a year. Yeah, it's okay to come off the mission field and spend some time at home. It's okay to put aside the things of ministry and the work of the ministry to spend time with close friends and family. And that's another thing that this time of year should be about. Right? Can't be all work, running around trying to get to Costco. I don't go near Costco. I don't even hardly say the word Costco this time of year. And I am a Costco freak. I sometimes go to Costco just because. <laughs> this time of year? No, I won't go near it. I did my shopping at Costco a couple of weeks ago. Don't ask me to go there this week. So I want to encourage you to live in the present, but also remember what's important and remember who is important. Sadly, all of us have experienced this to some degree over the last year or two. Either we were cut off from those we loved or those we loved went to be with the Lord. 
You don't know how much time you have with these precious people that you love so much. It's not just the little ones. It's the older ones. I was saying to my sensei at the dojo the other day, I said, you know what's what's kind of bumming me out is all my mentors have passed on. I'm the old guy now. I used to be the young guy. Now I'm the old guy. Where are all the people that poured into me? They've gone to be with the Lord. They've moved on. And you know what? That's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. But I don't have any regrets because I, I spent the time I needed with them. That's another encouragement I want to give you about spending time with people you love. Clear your schedule. If you find yourself saying you're busy, cancel those plans. Spend the time, especially with parents and grandparents, right? We don't know how long we have together in this life. Let's make the most of it. Can I hear an amen? Okay. This isn't really a Christmas message. It's more of an encouragement at Christmas time. Now, I want to go into this just a little bit, and then we'll pick it up again next week. But I just want to show you something, because in the remainder of this chapter, we read that after spending some time in Antioch, about a year, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, a year after his second missionary journey. I'm going to give you a little update, a little recap of what was happening in Paul's life. Paul preached the gospel now again in Asia Minor. By the way, that's where he's from. He's from Tarsus and Cilicia, which is in Asia Minor. Paul traveled west from Antioch through Syria and then throughout the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. Paul and Barnabas had traveled many years ago to Asia Minor on their first missionary journey. It's about 45 to 48 A.D. The chronology is important. helps you to understand when things happened. That was covered in Acts chapters 13 and 14. They had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout that entire region. They founded several churches during their time there. They had also gone to Cyprus, but later Barnabas continued to minister there. Then Paul and Silas about two years after the first missionary journey, traveled to Asia Minor on their second missionary journey. This is about 50 to 52 AD. And they strengthened the churches in Syria and Cilicia on their way to southern Galatia by land. Southern Galatia included the cities we studied and read about in Acts chapters 15 through 18, like Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Pisidian, Antioch. And then they arrived at the Lycaonian cities of Derbe and Lystra, places they had planted churches in the province of Galatia. Paul had written a letter to the Galatians. We read it frequently, right, in our New Testament. Now, Lycaonia was a region in Asia Minor. It was was in that area of southern Asia Minor. They kept going back to the places where they administered to strengthen the churches there. But they didn't stay because they had planted churches and left capable people behind That's a great and wonderful principle. Then they traveled throughout Phrygia and Galatia, made their way down to Troas, which was on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Now, we talked about Galatia. We talked about Phrygia. Galatia was Central Asia Minor. Phrygia was a region near it. And all of these cities were visited. Paul later wrote to these cities, ministered in these cities. But again, the principle is very clear. He didn't stay there. He moved on. Paul had returned to Antioch from Corinth, which we just read about, staying for a year, he now gets a little antsy and decides, you know, we need to get back out on the mission field. Like Pastor Joe was feeling these last two years, right, Pastor Joe? Every time he tries to plan a trip, there's some reason why they won't let him go. You know, one of the, I don't want to give the devil too much credit. There's, there's, there's one 
victory, if I can call it that, that the, that the devil had this last two years in the United States, it was closing churches. Okay, Not here, but in some places. One of the other things, unfortunately, we've had to contend with and may be considered a quote-unquote victory by Satan, although God works all things together for good. Amen? The mission fields closed down for most of us. And the sad truth is that as a result, ministry hasn't been taking place in those countries by Americans and other Western nations. But the truth is, ministries like Straight Path Ministries, not being able to go there, have been sending resources and supplies, and maybe that's what God wanted us to do. Pastor Joe and I had lunch a couple weeks ago, and he was sharing with me all of the opportunities had to, had to bless people because we're not going, there's more resources to give. So I don't call that a victory at all. I call that divine providence, amen? But hopefully, we'll be able to get back out there in God's time. If it's God's will. Okay. See, you got to learn to submit to that. God is in control. Okay. So, this is what was happening here. And so Paul, again, visited the brothers. This is on his second missionary journey, uh, where he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, The thing about what's happening here in verse 23 is he first went home, 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 Tarsus and Cilicia, where no doubt he had family. After having been at the home church in Jerusalem, after having been at the home church in Antioch, after about a year, he said, you know, it's time to go home, home. So he goes back to Cilicia, as we've already read, visits those churches for a third time, the churches we've just mentioned, strengthening all the disciples in all the churches in the same regions he administered on his first two missionary journeys. You see, you never really stop ministering to a person. You don't write them off or a work of God. God continues to encourage, but notice he didn't stay there. One other last principle I want to leave you with, and it has to do with this idea that God can use someone else. We get to verse 24, and we learn that while Paul was doing all these things that we've talked about, something else was going on. In verse 24, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. That is, he didn't know about the baptism of the Spirit. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. As smart as he was, he didn't know everything, and neither do you. Everyone needs to be ministered to and ministered in, to learn to minister in the way that God has called them. Well, Apollos traveled from Alexandria in Egypt to Ephesus in proconsular Asia. While he was in Ephesus, this Grecian Jew from the city of Alexandria, he met the people that Paul left there to minister. Sound like God's in control? What if Paul didn't leave Priscilla and Aquila? What if he stayed there and didn't go on to where he was called to be? He had the sensitivity to know that God can use others. And look at what God was doing. Now, Alexandria was an ancient city in Lower Egypt on the Mediterranean Sea, a very different part of the world. In fact, it was the second largest Roman city, second to Rome. And it was famous for the Library of Alexandria. Perhaps you've read about it, which was destroyed in an earthquake. 
But it was a city of scholars who believed in the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And this approach that Apollos had would have been extremely helpful in reaching the Jews with the gospel. Does it mean that Paul wasn't good at it? No. It means that God raised up a man named Apollos because he had different gifts. There are people in your universe, (laughs) in your sphere of influence, that have gifts that are different than yours. They may be better at something and called to do something that you're not. And if you're still trying to do what it is they're called to do, you're getting in the way. You might as well be playing volleyball with Julio. You put yourself out there, bro. So look at, look at this wonderful, wonderful thing that God does. There were about a million Jews in the city where two of the five wards in the city were, were Jewish. And this is a good thing. This man comes from this place. He was an educated man. He had studied the Jewish scriptures. He may have even been a member of that famous synagogue in Jerusalem called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. It was a synagogue of Grecian Jews from the areas north and south of Israel. They didn't like Paul very much. But here's Apollos, a believer and a disciple of Jesus who spoke passionately, we're told, in the fervor of the power of the Spirit. And yet he didn't really understand the giftings of the Spirit. He was gifted by the Spirit, but he didn't understand or teach the truth of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're told that specifically, and we'll see how that worked out in the next chapter next week. But he accurately taught others about Jesus and the baptism of John. The principles of the New Covenant were only just being written down by Paul and others, so you can't fault him for not knowing every bit of doctrine that was out there. But what he did know, he shared. I remember many years ago when I started my first Bible study at work and I invited my entire department to come, and they all came. Week one, week two, only one person returned. And I remember one person, her name was Robin, she said to me, you know, before you start teaching the Bible, you should know the whole Bible. And I said, well, you know, I read the book of Galatians and the book of Ephesians, and I can teach those books. If you wait till you know everything, you'll never do anything. What do you know? What do you know? Are you sharing what you know? You don't have to know everything. But what you know, share. Well, Apollos addressed the Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus. This is where Paul had been. They were looking for Paul to stay. Paul couldn't stay. What did God do? Raised up another guy. He boldly preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in the synagogue. And he tried to persuade them from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. By the way, that is exactly how you minister to Jews. Pure and simple. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, they hear about, they hear Apollo speak. Here they are. Paul is left. They're hanging out. They're doing ministry. And this guy shows up and he's gifted. What did they do? Did they come to him and say, what denomination are you? Who sent you here? Let me see your Bible certificate. We didn't give you permission to open up your mouth. You don't have a master's degree. No. No, they didn't do that at all. They invited him into their home. I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial. We Christians are the worst, most parochial people when we want to be. I've heard pastors and leaders say, oh, is he a Baptist? 
Oh, is he Pentecostal? Oh, right away we got to categorize somebody before God can use them. Let me tell you something. A lot of people out there very different than you that are used by God just as mightily. We know this. My eyes were open when we went to Cuba. I don't remember a Calvary Chapel in Cuba. Maybe there was one. We didn't go there. We worked with all kinds of churches, right, Pastor Joe? When we were in uh, El Salvador, we did work with the Calvary Chapel there. It really didn't work well. I, I mean, I'm not going to be critical of the, of the church, but the other churches were the ones we were called to work with. God gave us other ministry partners from other churches, orphanages, different ministries. And what were we going to do? I'm sorry, you're not a member of Calvary Chapel. We can't work with you. No. We embraced the people that God had brought into our lives to work in the ministry with. And that's what they did. Oh, they went one step further. They invited him over. I'm learning the older I get how important it is to look for God's leading. And not for a person's denomination. Not for their ministry background or their doctrinal beliefs. Do they love Christ? Do they want to serve him? Are they willing to open their hearts to you and to others? Then for sure you need to invite them in. That's what they did. I like these people, by the way. Priscilla and Aquila, they're a great example. And you know there are a lot of Priscilla's and Aquila's in this church. And I love that. Okay. Remember Paul had left them there. They taught Apollos what he didn't know about being a disciple of Jesus. There are people in your life that know stuff you don't, and there's stuff that you know that they don't. And if you never share the lessons you've learned experientially as you've served God, they're not going to know it. You're not going to know stuff. We need to build each other up. Remember, Paul would go to different churches doing what? Tearing them down? Dividing them into tiny bite-sized pieces? No. Strengthening the church. Strengthening the disciples. That's the ministry of the gospel. Strengthening disciples. Sharing the gospel. Strengthening and building up the church. And so... This intelligent man who was willing to receive instruction from others, you've got to give him credit because some people are close-minded. They had been taught by Paul, now they taught Apollos. And by the way, let me just throw this out there, ladies. Women are certainly anointed by the Spirit to teach others, even men. Amen? Oh, I know that we may not have women in the pastor role. We may not have women up here teaching all the time. Maybe occasionally we do. But it doesn't mean that women are gifted. I think we forget that. I'm going to say something. Many of those that have taught me through the years have been women, and I've learned probably more from women than I have from men. I'm just going to say it because it's true. So why do we do that to ourselves? Why, why do we limit who, who, who can speak to us? Why, why do we say that, oh, only 50% or 40% of the population can minister to me? That's just ridiculous. And this woman ministered to Apollos, and we're told that she did. Who knows? Maybe she was the better minister. Huh? Is it possible? Well, they certainly would have taught him about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what happens next is kind of interesting. You would think the guy comes to town, and they're like, oh, great, we got another ministry partner. But as I've said often, I'm in the business of emptying churches. I want people to take the ministry of the vision and leave and go into all the earth, baptizing, teaching others the truth of the gospel, making disciples. 
If we all get comfy here and we never leave these doors, we just come on Sundays and do our thing, then we fail to respond to the Holy Spirit's leading. So what did they do? Well, let's read and then we'll close. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And on arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Gifted man. He must have heard Priscilla and Aquila talk about their ministry in Corinth, which was in Achaia. We know that he goes to Corinth in the next verse of the, first verse of the next, next chapter. So he wants to go and do what they did. Do you know how most people decide to go on a missions trip? And correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor Joe. Someone comes back from a missions trip and tells them about it. Would you agree? Yes, Joe's shaking his head. I want to be clear, he's our missions pastor. So someone comes back and says, you got to go to Cuba. In fact, the first time I heard about Pastor Joe was a guy at church in New York who knew Joe. He came back from Cuba. Every other word out of his mouth was Cuba. Every other word was Joe Nigro. We didn't meet for several years, but I knew Cuba, Joe Nigro, Cuba, Joe Nigro. I knew that that was Joe's heart because a guy who went with him on a trip couldn't stop talking about his experience. That's how people get recruited for missions. Listen, that's what happened here. He wanted to go. Remember, Paul had been there for a year and a half. Silas and Timothy had stayed there, more than likely were still there, ministering there. Apollos had probably learned a lot and heard a lot about the church in Corinth. He wanted to go. He thought that he could be helpful. So the brothers at Ephesus encouraged Apollos to travel to Achaia to minister there. They wrote a letter of recommendation, which is good, right? And they would have provided financially for him and provided for his expenses before sending him off. That's what it means when it says they encouraged him. Now, Apollos was a great help to those in southern Greece in Achaia who by God's grace had believed in Jesus. He committed himself, and I hope all of you will as well, to do the work of the ministry. His ministry to publicly refute the Jews who had rejected the gospel. He proved to them from the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, that's the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, close this out with one last song. Listen. If you get any message this morning, it is this. Make yourself fully available to God. God can work through any one of us, every one of us. And to follow that up, don't get in the way. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your ministry in our lives, through our lives. We thank you for your word. And we ask now in the power and the name of Jesus that you would help us by your will to be where you've called us to be to minister to whom you've called us to minister, and to encourage and strengthen those you've encouraged us to encourage and strengthen. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.